0: Well, as we get ready today, before we go into verse 1, we know verse 1 in chapter 16 of First Corinthians is going to uh, mention an offering that has to be take up. And you know what it reminds me of? It makes me think of it in almost kind of a sad way. I think today is the first day I've ever been at Sunnyside where the two people that normally do our money counting, Eileen and Dr. Jim, have both not ever been here. And Eileen, of course, she had the issue with her heart after the pacemaker, and I think she's doing a little bit better But then Dr. Jim, uh, his wife, Linda, she's had an infection. She's in the hospital. So uh, as we get started here and we pray for our um, message this morning, we'll also remember that. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning, and we just pray as we come together to hear your word. We think of Dr. Jim and Linda as uh, Linda is dealing with this issue, and uh, we we miss them, and we just pray that you'd be with her, that you'd heal her. We also pray for Eileen the same, and Lord, we just uh, pray that you would use your guiding hand. We know you're the great physician. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And there's not really a lot of famous verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And that's because he's kind of wrapping up. You know, he's kind of wrapping up, but he doesn't really go into a lot of big theological issues. As a matter of fact, he starts going into some, uh, some planning. You know, planning, it's an interesting thing. I was working on my dissertation uh, this week, and I was reading about Martin Luther. So when Martin Luther left the Catholic Church, he was really, really big on what's called the priesthood of all believers, right? So we no longer needed a priest to come to Christ. We could get to Christ directly without a priest. And so he really, really did not like the priesthood. As a matter of fact, he used really strong language against the Catholic Church. He was... He, you know, made no bones about it. He would call them the stupid papists, and he would, you know, he would really go after them. And so when these reforms started taking place within the Reformation, you have to think about it. Ideally, in Martin Luther's mind, something like this would happen. Okay, we're leaving the Catholic Church. No longer are we going to have the Catholic Church be able to decide who the bishops are and then who the priests are of each individual congregation, but we're going to have the people decide. Should be ordained, and we're gonna have the people decide who should be running things. So this was kind of his view that the people should be a part of ordination, and this was gonna be a big shift. And ideally, this sounds great, right? This is like a great theory. Oh, the best made plans. What do you think happened once all the people and all the churches said, okay, we have agreed we're gonna convert, we're not we're not going to be Catholic anymore, we're gonna be Lutheran. Well, we need a pastor. What about you? What are, you know, like, like, what do you do, right? So what do you think actually happened? Did suddenly they ordain hundreds, if not thousands, of people all at once in order to fill all the spots of places that had been Catholic now as Lutheran pastors? No. What actually ended up happening? Most of the churches, it seems, and there was a lady who did a ton of research, There's a lady who went through and looked at all this documentation from the visitation records of all the Lutheran priests, and it looks like most of them were just Catholic priests that agreed to switch to be Lutherans. Now, over the next 50 to 100 years, many, many Lutheran priests were, uh, pastors were ordained, so that changed. But what I'd like you to think about is, I'm sure in Luther's mind, what was going to happen was, the world was going to be changed, the doctrine was going to be changed, and everything about Germany and the way they worshipped and he, he thought was going to be changed. Guess what actually happened? If you went to a rural church in Germany that had converted the Lutheranism, you know what it was going to look like? Probably just exactly like a Catholic church. Exactly like a Catholic church with almost no change. Now, I'm not saying there was anything evil or wrong. I'm not trying to put any blame. I'm just saying the best laid plans, right? I'm sure there's been times in life you've made plans and you thought they were going to work. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how Paul makes plans here. He first of all says in verse one, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are to do. So you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. So he's asking them, as every week goes by, that they take up a collection, and when he comes, he'll be able to pick it up. I read one commentator that said something like, he probably had them take it up week by week so the offering would be bigger. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, for some reason he asked them to do it. Then he goes on to verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter carrying to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So he says, who's going to carry the money? You guys are going to give. And then someone that you approve of is going to actually carry this money to be delivered to Jerusalem. We're not even 100% sure what this money might be used for in Jerusalem. They obviously knew what he was talking about, so maybe it was for the poor in Jerusalem, maybe it was for the church, we're not really sure, but he was sending it there. And I would like to make this comment right now. You probably know the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Maybe, maybe those words aren't super care, you know, uh, familiar for you, but you probably know the difference, and i describe it like this. Descriptive is like, is like this. I could describe to you the way I fold a shirt. And it, I would describe it as poorly, probably, is how I fold the shirt. You know, I say, okay, well, I take the shoulders and I bring them together. And then I kind of flop the arms down the middle. And then I sort of fold it in half and maybe fold it in half again. And then just chuck it in there and hope for the best. You know, something like that. I might describe how I did it. But I wouldn't be telling you, you need to fold your shirt like this. Like, this is the way I'm telling you you should. I'm just describing it. Right? I'm just saying this is how it was done. And then I might say something, hey, um, I'm, I'm hiring you in order to uh, run my store, and I want you to stock the sh- shelves this way. And when I say they need to be stocked, stocked this way, I'm saying like this way, not another way. I'm not describing to you how I'm doing it, I am telling you it needs to be done this way. This is descriptive, and prescriptive. I always think of it like prescription drugs. When the doctor tells me, he prescribes me drugs, I'm supposed to take them. I mean, that's how I've always remember it, whether that's helpful for you, I don't know. But when Paul is talking about with the way they did things here, in my opinion, part of the reason these verses aren't that famous is a lot of what he's doing here is, it's not prescriptive. Is he saying, you have to take an offering every week and then give it to some of your people and send it to Jerusalem? No, right? No. He's saying, this is what we did. This is what we did. And so he's describing what he did. He goes, they go on to verse four. It says, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So he says, if you think it's a good idea, I'll go with them. So he's even offering not to ride with them, if that would be wise. And so this idea of handling this money, hopefully churches do this as well, right? How many people count the money? More than one, right? Because the Bible says there has to be seven people counting the money. No, the Bible never really says, but we say, we'll be wise and we're going to do it this way. I mean, some places have rules about how many people can drive it to the bank. It can't be more, it has to be, a you know, you have systems in place to try to do it the wisest way you can. And different places may do it differently, but I think we see Paul trying to do it the best and wisest way can and try to avoid being thinking that he was trying to take their money. Verse five, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intended to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. And so he says, I, maybe I'll stay with you through the winter. Likely he's going to stay through the winter because uh, the winter was the worst time to travel by sea. And notice here he says, and perhaps I will. Perhaps I will. You know, if anybody were to know the future of what they were going to do, that wasn't God or Jesus or somebody, who do you think that would be? You'd think Paul would really know what he was going to be doing in the future. Does Paul really know whether he's going to stay in Corinth for that time? No. I'd like you to think about this in your life. We want to make plans with our life. Right? We want to make plans. Paul made plans here. Um, maybe you said, well, I'm going to go to college. And I'm going to do this. Or I'm not going to do this. Or I'm going to join the military or whatever I was going to do. And then you say... And then I'm going to get married at, you know, 22. And then I'm going to have my first kid when I'm 25 or whatever, you know, the thing is. You can, you can make plans. You can say, this is what I'd like to see. And then what happens? Almost none of those plans ever come true. Almost never. When I was 18 and I went off to college and I was trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, I suppose, being a pastor, or at least I'm, I'm there, I, that was my plan. I did not have any big plans on living in Wichita, Kansas, right? I did not have any plans. And here, here I am. And I'm sure many of you have many stories in your life where you made the best laid plans, and, and if you're Ryan, the military sends you somewhere else, right? And then you didn't, uh, didn't have any choice in the matter. And as we go through our life, I think sometimes we get really frustrated that our plans aren't coming true. It's almost like we think, God... I'm going to believe in you, and then I'm going to make these plans, and then it's kind of like your job to make sure they work out. You know? So, you know, maybe I'm not studying that hard in school and not trying and maybe failing a few, but you know, I'm counting on being the CEO of Pepsi, so if you could just sort of, you know, that's what I wrote down on my future I'm going to be list if you could just sort of make that happen. Plans are good. You want plans. But we always need to be ready to change our plans. We do not know what God's plan is for our life. We do not know what he has for us. And so as we think about our journey, where we're doing our life, where we're going to stay next winter, you know, I think I'm going to be in Wichita this next winter. I'd certainly plan on it. But we never know what God might have for us. Go on to verse 7. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. And he's wanting here once again. He's not sure if he's going to be able to do it, but he'd like to spend some quality time with them. Verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effectiveness, effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So he says he's going to what? Stay in Ephesus a little longer Right? Verse 8, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because the circumstances decided it. Once again, he goes, he sees, he has a plan. The plan doesn't go as he thinks. He adapts, he changes. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put, to put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. And now, he, when he says... When Timothy comes to you, I would like you to show him hospitality, and I'd like us to think about this. The world's changed a lot, but there is some things about the world that haven't changed too much. There is value in having someone else that you know vouch for you, right? So if I'm looking for a job and someone else works at that place, and they tell the person hiring, Joel's a good guy, that goes really, really far. Very far. I mean, almost further than what degrees you have. Right? If they want to hire you, they might go, oh yeah, you're supposed to have a bachelor's and whatever to do this, but, you know, Frank says you're great. So Frank says you're great, then you're in. Right? Frank says you're great, then you're in. The value of having people vouch for you is a really big deal. And so among the the, sort of the Internet age, eBay capitalized on this big time. So eBay used to be like the king of online sales. And how could you ever trust to buy anything on eBay? Why would you ever buy anything on eBay? What did they do? They created a rating system. When you bought something from someone on eBay, you rated how good of a job they did. So if they like didn't send it to you or they misrepresented what they were selling, you gave them a bad rating. And guess what? If your first two ratings were bad, nobody was ever going to buy from you again. And so suddenly you can show I've had 3,000 sales and I have a 99.8% rating. Guess what? everyone is going to buy from you. See, eBay suddenly went from how can we trust anybody to buy from somebody, use things we do not know, we've never met. They capitalized on the rating. The one person being a vouch for another. What's interesting about eBay is not only that, but you know, we don't even know the people that rated them. And we still kind of go with it and it works pretty well. I mean, Amazon has the same system and I've tended to find, not with perfectly, but if it has five stars, it's probably going to work the way you think it's going to work. If it has two stars, you just you know, cross your fingers and hope you're one of the ones that are giving it lots of stars. But the having a vouching for you is important. And we do this in ministry a lot, right? When you go to a new church and they say, well, should they be a member? You know, we maybe do a letter. We've done that in the past. Even ordination counts on people vouching for you. So you want to become someone that is someone is willing to vouch for. We go on to verse eleven. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So don't despise him, treat him well, and bring him back to me. And this, of course, if we ever have a visitor, a guest, is someone, a special speaker, musician, we want to treat them with hospitality. I think we do a fairly good job about that, but it's Good to think about it and be reminded. We go to verse 12. It says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So do you remember in chapter 1 when there were factions and said, Some follow Apollos? See, Apollos was in Corinth at one time. And I think... The reason Apollos doesn't want to come back, I could be wrong, very much could be wrong, is he does not want to stir up the factions that were de- so terribly decimating and dividing the church of Corinth. They were, they were, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, right? I follow Jesus Christ. So Apollos says, I'm not going to go there because maybe I will cause this to happen even worse. Pastors who retire, I'm sure Dr. Matt could tell us all about it, have the same question, right? When I retire, what do I do in order to help the continuing next pastor, the next generation go on and do the best that they can? And how do I become an asset? And sometimes pastors say, the way I can be an asset is to not be here, to not be around. You know, a pastor that's been at a church for 25 years and they retire... Every time there's a big question that comes up, you know what everyone's jerk reaction is going to be? Go look at the guy they've been listening to for the last 25 years. And then the poor new guy is like, every time we do something, all they do is look at the guy that just retired. Right? I'm not saying that's always true. I'm sure sure there are pastors that have said it's worked out. It's not some sort of universal truth. But sometimes the best thing you can do in situations is to... Not be there, and maybe this is why Apollos thought it was not wise. I mean, it could be he had something he was going on; he couldn't make it. I don't know. I'm, I'm conjecturing there a little bit, but I think that makes sense. We go on to verse thirteen: Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. We kind of go to what probably now is so starting of the ending summary. He's summarizing some of the things he said and saying some general statements, and then he makes a general statement that I really want to focus on here this morning. He says. Let all that you do be done in love. When we get to the summary and he's going back and he's kind of saying all the things you need to remember about 1 Corinthians, what does he say? Do it in love. Do it in love. We have to do sometimes, we have to do hard things. You know, bosses have to fire people. We have to change jobs. We have to do things that are very difficult. And it doesn't mean that all those decisions are going to be easy. Sometimes a boyfriend has to break up with a girlfriend. Sometimes whatever. They, and, and it hurts. And the, and the pain is not going to not be there. But we can do hard things and that hurt will be there. And we can still do it with love. With love. You know, if the division that was causing being caused in Corinth, I think if they would have had these differences and brought these differences together in love, while they may have still had a difference of opinion on a things, I do not believe the schisms would have happened. We go to verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts and Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. He's once again talking uh, positively about someone. He's talking about Stephanus, who's likely wealthy because it mentions his household. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. So he's saying, do what they say. Listen, maybe maybe part of their problem, they weren't listening to them, and if they would have, they wouldn't have had divisions. We're not sure. Verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. Some people think that these two were actually former slaves of Stephanas, based on the grammar. We don't really know, but it very well could be. But Paul is suggesting that they respect them, once again demonstrating that social status is not what makes one have social status within the church. Verse 18, For they refresh my spirit as well as yours, give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This isn't probably important, but it's kind of interesting. Do you know how many times in the Bible it tells us to greet one another with a holy kiss? Five. How many other things in the Bible? No, how many other things in the New Testament that we are directly commanded five times do we not do? Not only do we not do it, in the first hundred years within the documentation that we have after, of all the documentation we have, not in the New Testament, greeting one another with the holy kiss is never even mentioned. We can't even find it until a hundred years later. I am not sure why that is. I'm not sure why that is. Like, I'm not really suggesting we started up here. I'm, I'm just saying it's just it's just really very interesting because the reason the holy kiss thing was probably commanded is because it was a way to show it was something you did with family. It was like a family thing. You would do it with your family members, and so the church, you know, and sometimes we'll use the phrase here, you know, Sunnyside family, right? And so, in a way to show that you were like a family was you would you would greet one another with a kiss, and it's. It's probably hard to argue. It was almost surely a kiss on the lips. And, they would, and that's how you would greet one another, to show you were family and that you cared about one another. And so I'm not suggesting we do that. No one would know what it meant. I'm sure, you know, <laughs> next visitor that walks in the door, we all start smooching on my That's the last thing I'm going to work out, all right? So don't get, don't get it twisted here. But we do want to treat one another like family and so maybe our culture is different and we demonstrate that in a different way but we should get to the point where we care about one another like we would family i paul wrote this greeting with my own hand this probably means that he had someone writing this letter for him he was dictating it i think that's called an amanuensis if my memory serves correct. And they were someone who'd write on his behalf. And at the very end, it was fairly common for the person who was dictating it to write the last bit in their own handwriting to demonstrate it was really them. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So he not only commands to have love, now he says you need to have love for the Lord, not just for each other, but for the Lord. Let him be accursed. And of course, ultimately, if we do not have a relationship with Christ, our fate is eternal separation from the Lord. And then in the end we get to, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, as we come to the time of communion, I like to think about a few things. You know what it said there, and he was summarizing it, and he said what? What did we need? What you have you done? Love, love. And what's the ultimate example of love that we see in the world? You know, there's songs written about it, right? All we need is love. It probably doesn't go like that, and I don't know anymore. But love is the thing that we ultimately need. And Christ demonstrated that love toward us when he died on the cross. It is the greatest act of love we've seen where Christ lays out this gift to us to take. As we take communion, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, I would like us to think about the importance, of the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to die, to demonstrate us what true love is, the ultimate sacrifice. Sometimes we'll, we'll give an hour of our time and we think, oh, look at my sacrifice. Lord, you didn't give an hour of your time. You gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for loving us that much, for giving us that opportunity to put our faith and trust in you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.